on his own line. Um, so, uh, write in every week. Um, the link will be on the website soon. And does anyone else have any questions or announcements, questions, comments before we get started? Okay. Well, today, Chris is one of our AgBioView students is going to introduce our speaker. So come on, Chris. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our third GES Colloquium. Today, we are here to listen and to talk to a person who's thinking about searching for ancient DNA, the use and the abuse of celebrity, brought to us by Dr. Elizabeth Jones. Imagine, or I imagine we are all familiar with Jurassic Park franchise, right? According to industry experts, Jurassic Park franchise is one of the highest grossing film franchises of all time. In fact, it has earned over $6 billion worldwide. Now, we're not here to plug Jurassic Park as directors. We're actually here to talk about how Dr. Jones has used the implications, both scientific, technological, and cultural, of this blockbuster to roaringly explore <laughs> its implications. Until now, no one has done this. Through her recently published book, Ancient DNA, The Making of Celebrity Science, Dr. Jones reveals the untold story and the rise of a new scientific field ancient DNA. Our speaker is an expert in science history and crustaceous creatures, a renowned curator of dino-centered exhibits for all ages, phenomenal writer, an alumna of North Carolina State University. Dr. Jones is among the best in their field. Without holding your excitement, please help me in welcoming Dr. Elizabeth Jones. Thank you. That's um, definitely the most flattering introduction that I've had. So I'm going to bring you along with me everywhere I go. <laughs> Thank you, Christopher. I appreciate it. Let me share my screen for everyone. And we'll get this going. Oh, no. I'm starting at the end, start at the beginning. <coughs> there we go. So like Christopher mentioned, um, I went to NC State as an undergrad and I was telling a friend just recently that last time I was in this building was first semester, my freshman year for an 8.30 a.m. Spanish class. Horrible, <laughs> horrible. So it was bringing back some good memories coming in here to talk to you today. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm going to be talking to you today specifically about this idea of the use and abuse of celebrity in science. It's going to be a little bit more provocative because I figured this audience would like that sort of thing. Um, and this talk comes from my recently published book, um, Ancient DNA, the Making of a Celebrity Science. So I'm a historian of science and how I like to describe it to people is I go behind the scenes to figure out what gets discovered, who gets to discover it, how it gets discovered, and then what that means for society and how society impacts science as well. So for this book, I use traditional historical research methods. So reading lots of books, reading lots of articles, going to the archives, but also incorporated oral history methods. So I 
traveled around and interviewed over 50 <laughs> scientists and researchers who work in and around the field of ancient DNA, um, including um, the area of de-extinction. And I used their stories to help write a history. Now, today, I'm going to be really heavy on the quotations from interviewees. That is not all of my source base, but it's a fun one that I want to share with you. So be prepared for lots of quotations. Okay, and I'm going to hit you with a big old disclaimer before we start. Now, when we're talking about the use and abuse of celebrity, these are not my perceived abuses of celebrity. This is about scientists' perceived abuses of celebrity. I want to make that clear. And also, I'm not trying to make a normative argument. So I'm not trying to say this is how science should or should not be. This is a descriptive argument about what the evidence says and how scientists either portray it to me or to each other or amongst um, the public and journalists in the community. So nor not normative, but descriptive. Don't forget that, please, or else I'll get in trouble, right? So the outline is pretty simple. We're going to talk a little bit about ancient DNA research. We're going to talk about this new concept of celebrity science, which I introduce in the book. Then we're specifically going to talk about celebrity as a strategy. And also we're going to put it in a little bit of a historical context so we can understand this bigger picture of how science operates, not just in the field of ancient DNA research, but in science more broadly. So first, ancient DNA research. For the book, and as most people define it, it is um, the extraction, sequencing, and analysis of DNA from really old specimens. These can be plants, animals, humans, or bacteria, and it can be anywhere from hundreds to several thousands to even upper millions of years old. Um, ancient DNA has been around as a so-called discipline since um, the late 1980s through today. And so the history that I write takes place from the 1980s up till today. Now, I want to ask a question. Um, who in here has submitted a research grant before or been a part of the application process? Great. Who here has gotten a rejection for their research grant? Yep, there we go. So you're in good company with each other, and also you are in good company with the late Alan Wilson. He was a pioneer in molecular evolutionary biology, um, one of the scientists with his students behind the uh, mitochondrial Eve concept and a lot of human evolution insights. Um, but he was also most commonly known as one of the uh, founding figures of ancient DNA research. So most scientific publications that talk about the history will cite this as the beginning of the field. Now I show there were a lot of other people doing this DNA from fossil things um, simultaneously and sometimes a little bit before um, Alan Wilson um, published his 1984 article on the um, This was the first specimen to have about several hundred base pairs of DNA extracted from. And this publication um, was um, published in Nature in 1984. So that's why most people commonly cite this as the beginning of the field. It was the time it, it was the first time that it that hit the headlines in this way in a notable scientific journal. Now, when um, 
Alan Wilson and his colleagues, Russell Higuchi and Ellen Prager, uh, were waiting for this to be published. They submitted a grant to the National Science Foundation for about $300,000 to search for fossil DNA from amber insects, the mammoth, the moa, the quagga, and more. This was the first big grant of its kind, and it was um, they introduced it as you know the founding of a new field, molecular paleontology. Now, overall, the grant was um, pretty well received, um, but in some of the reviews, we see some different um, reactions, some some skepticism. One reviewer said, "I am not convinced that the selection of these organisms will demonstrate the universal applicability of recombinant DNA technology." However, at one time, it was common knowledge that the earth was flat and the mood was made of grain cheese. Another reviewer said, I refuse to gaze into a crystal ball and reject the possibility a priori. It is clear that looking for fossil DNA is worth the trials and tribulations, particularly if so distinguished a researcher as Wilson wishes to undergo the trauma. And finally, Discovering and extracting DNA from fossil species, very interesting, technically difficult biochemical feat, but it is certainly not clear to me how this approach will broaden our perspective on any major evolutionary problems. That's probably my favorite. So in the end, the panel said, we don't consider that obtaining clonable DNA from a 140 year old museum specimen, the quagga, However interesting, we don't think it provides sufficient preliminary evidence to show that DNA is likely to yield valuable information from ancient creatures. This was 1985, and this is all really hilarious because we all know Svante Pabo and the Neanderthal genome. So here we have the advantage of hindsight where we see what came, but at the time in the 80s, this was new territory and there was high skepticism. Big risk, but potentially big reward. Now let's go back to the late 80s and the 90s. So ancient DNA over these years was extracted from the thylacine, the extinct thylacine, uh, also mammoths, and of course, insects and amber, the Jurassic Park hypothesis. And this brings me to the next section about celebrity science. So I defined celebrity science in this book as a subjective science. So not a specific scientist, but a subjective science that evolves under intense public interest and extreme media exposure. Here we see that the media are presenting scientists with opportunities for publicity, but we also see the reverse, that scientists are pragmatic in fashioning their own occasions for public notice. So Overall, celebrity science is both a process that happens and it is the result of consistent science and media interactions over a prolonged period of time. So the best example of this is Jurassic Park, and this is the one I'm going to highlight today. For other examples, you can look through the book. Um, but Jurassic Park was published by Michael Crichton in 1990, and it was quickly acquired to become a major blockbuster film directed by Steven Spielberg to be released in 1993. Around this time, a number of researchers set out for what journalists were calling a race for the most ancient DNA. And they were specifically looking for DNA in insects and amber. Now, Nature published the results from one team in California that claimed to have extracted 135 million year old DNA from an insect weevil. And the results were published in Nature on June 10th, 1993. 
And I tell you this date because it was the day after the Jurassic Park movie premiere and the day before its public release in movie theaters across the United States. And it caused a huge splash. So here we see this interaction between publication timing and scientific research and cultural media. Um, one interviewee said, I thought it absolutely extraordinary that a scientific journal, and there was no way it was a coincidence, that a prestigious scientific journal like Nature would hold on to an article to wait for the opening day of a movie. Of course, it caused a huge media splash. Now, what's important here that I want to distinguish again is this idea that these are not my perceived um, what abuses of celebrity, but this scientist's view of what happened. But also, I want to step back and say, when we look at the, the whole of science, and especially uh, movies and uh, other cultural phenomenon, this isn't so uh, unique of, a, of a coincidence. Um, this really happens frequently in science and with media movies and um, other events like that. But here we see that this scientist's perception that this was a, a less than desirable thing to have happened. We also see that it influences grant funding. So um, one researcher um, out in Montana applied to the National Science Foundation, this time not to look for DNA in amber insects, but in dinosaur bone. And this grant was funded. And this researcher said, I think NSF gave us the money at the time just because of the movie. It was the perfect time for it. And in case you're wondering, they didn't find any dinosaur DNA. And also it, re it influenced research agendas. <clears throat> so um, in the late 1990s, a team of researchers from the Natural History Museum in London set out to explicitly test this Jurassic Park hypothesis, and they were funded through the United Kingdom. And um, this researcher who worked on the project said, my job that I got at the museum was down to Jurassic Park the museum probably would have never had the funding to try to undo this DNA from Amber if it hadn't been for Jurassic Park in the first place. Part of my entry into the field was due to a movie. Now this whole idea of getting DNA from Amber insects hyped up by Jurassic Park um, and, and was a real question among the public and among scientists, like what kind of fossil material could preserve DNA better than some others, and it was believed that Amber could. So this study that came out in 1997 um, really did an, an extensive survey of different types of Amber from different years and different resins, and they found that they, in every case, failed to extract any reliable DNA. So here the result was the implications were that any earlier studies claiming to have extracted DNA were either the result of contamination, so maybe some other insect DNA or contaminants from the environment, um, or that maybe that was DNA, but the products couldn't be reproduced, and so therefore weren't as reliable because it couldn't be replicated and further understood. And what all this did is it said it was a huge drop in confidence for the field overall. The public was bombed, scientists were annoyed, and because there was this idea of what could ancient DNA could do, and it was shown to not be true, at least at that time. And so a number of researchers responded, uh, specifically Alan Cooper and Hendrik Poinar. They wrote um, 
a really influential article called Ancient DNA, Do It Right or Not at All. It's published in Science. A lot of interviewees actually call it Ancient DNA, Do It With Me or Not at All. Because what happened from this article is that they set out a series of nine criteria that you needed to follow in order to ensure that your results were not contaminated, were robust, were reliable, and could be appropriately applied to evolutionary questions. Um, and what happened is that um, some researchers and editors and reviewers and um, granting agencies took these to heart as a checklist of everything you had to do. And essentially the community of ancient DNA researchers split into two groups, two different conferences, um, published in different places, um, pursued separate collaborations because they were mistrustful of the methods that some were using in some labs versus others, very much as a consequence of this article. But here we want to talk about celebrity strategy, because this was more than just a fear of contamination in the lab. We see that it was a response to literal contamination. Here, it's the exposure of external DNA from the environment, organisms, or microbes, or from human handling of ancient samples in the lab. And we see that in the early 1990s, Ancient DNA researchers were very aware of this because this is a comic from the Ancient DNA newsletter in 1991 um, showing the excessive PCR amplification effects and PCR, which we haven't talked about, but which was integral to this field, was the instrument, the technology that made ancient DNA possible as far as replicating really, really small uh, strands of DNA in order to be studied. But we also see from the scientist's perspective that there's this figurative type of contamination. And this is their perspective of disproportionate or what they view as underserved media attention. And they feel that it has an adverse effect on the credibility of the science of ancient DNA. And here's a, an example as early as the late 1980s, mad scientists cloning dinosaurs as weapons of the futures. So as scientists, as much as they need or want to be in the public, there is always this need to temper what is being covered and how it's being portrayed. Expectations. So celebrity strategy, it's actually really complicated. So celebrity is usually portrayed as something that's superficial. Um, inauthentic, it's usually used in the pejorative, but what I think that we see in the history of ancient DNA, that celebrity is much more nuanced than that. And in order to do it justice, we have to explore that nuance. Um, and one of the things in particular is that we have seen how celebrity has helped empower the field in terms of um, research funding, research agendas, student recruitment, publication timing, visibility impact. It was used to empower the field, but at the very same time, some scientists felt it was used to undermine the field. And we'll talk about that. So some of the researchers thought that the celebrity took precedence to the research question. So one scientist who works closely with ancient DNA researchers said this, they, the scientists, may have a research question, but sometimes it's even pre-getting a research question. It's like, let's study these, let's see if there's DNA in these fossils. And I've seen several examples of let's, let's, 
splits this species. We give a PhD student species, they collect fossils from all over, they do the DNA, they draw up the trees, and then they start to ask questions. And then the supervisor is usually looking for a high impact angle. It's a slightly odd way of doing science. However, another interview, we explained this and the nuance that helped make this process of science a little bit more clear. So you've got to separate the ancient DNA researchers need for the press and the press's need for ancient DNA research. The press love ancient DNA because it's on stories that are attractive to the public. When they've got nothing, they come to us because it'll be interesting. We work on history, anthropology, archaeology. We work on weird shit, dinosaurs, whatever. But the ancient DNA researchers, that's how they justify getting their money, right? That's how X gets his money because the Y government wants to show that Y science is world class. How better to do that than to have science report it? So X gets that press. The government is happy. Give X more money. More succinctly put, another researcher called it a self-perpetuating system where high impact publications lead to further funding, higher visibility, and the cycle goes round. But I know this is a lot of text, but I wanna make it really clear that this either or characterization is somewhat misleading. So it's not either all celebrity or all about the scientific question or all about the technology. What we really see if we look closely at the development of ancient DNA studies from the 1980s today is that scientists at different times were using a variety of approaches. They were using a celebrity-driven approach, a data-driven approach, which refers to the technology that's available and the samples that are available and questions. So what kind of evolutionary question did they want to answer and could DNA help answer it? So they were using these approaches simultaneously and iteratively, sometimes foregrounding the appeal of celebrity, other times priority, prioritizing the available and often cutting edge technology. Think of next generation sequencing and other times focusing on the evolutionary questions. So what we see is the ancient DNA researchers are strategic and they're very savvy at assessing what's going to be possible, especially in a field where the stakes are really high and the chances of our success are really low. So what they're doing is they're assessing the achievability of the results against the technology and against the prestige that could be gained and the impact made on science. So now we're gonna put celebrity in a little bit of historical context. If there are any historians listening, they'll cringe at this because it's, it's short and sweet. Um, but let's talk about de-extinction. Has anyone seen this image before? Do you know what year it was from? Oh yeah, 2013. Yeah, I was gonna say it was recent, but that's 10 years ago now, right? Um, <laughs> it's, not, it's not recent. Um, this was the cover for National Geographic. And what was um, important about this is that this was a piece written about a conference um, that was hosted by National Geographic um, and a Revive and Restore from the Long Now Foundation and um, Ted. It was a TED Talk series. Um, it was a two-day conference and held in Washington. And a variety of researchers came together for the very first time to seriously talk about this potential to, to bring back extinct organisms. So they talked about the gastric 
brooding frog, the, the passenger pigeon, and the mammoth. You're all familiar with the passenger pigeon because you had Ben Novak here last spring discussing his work dedicated to that. And then you also may or may not have heard of this Pleistocene Park. This was an image that was put in that National Geographic um, magazine from 2013. And this is a, uh, a representation of some real research that is going on um, in Siberia. Some Russian scientists are interested in, in not just bringing back the mammoth, but uh, recreating the ecosystem in which it lived in. So a more whole ecosystem approach to de-extinction. Um, and then, of course, there's George Church and the Colossal Program, um, where they're really putting their efforts into um, gene editing to bring back the mammoth, among other creatures. So ancient DNA has historically been closely connected to Jurassic Park, but there's also this really close connection to what is now referred to as Pleistocene Park. Because while we can't get DNA, at least not yet, uh, from dinosaurs. There is plenty of DNA and whole genomes from mammoths. So the expectations of how far back we can go in time have shifted and the media and scientists have shifted with those expectations. So why, why is this idea of de-extinction so closely tied to ancient DNA? Well, despite the fact that ancient DNA researchers are closely connected to this idea, um, and all of the people I interviewed, they have little or nothing at all to do with de-extinction efforts. And in fact, a number of them use these words like mad and crazy and weird and ludicrous and a freak idea to describe these efforts. However, I'm all about the nuance. And one interviewee pointed this out saying, it is very easy to slam it, de-extinction. It's also very easy to jump on it. The question is whether you can have a meaningful discussion in the interstitial spaces between those two extremes. Now, why is it important to have that discussion in between the two extremes? Well, in the 1980s, you had the, the science communication movement started in the United Kingdom, uh, continued on in the United States. It was all about the public understanding of science. So how can scientists better and more effectively communicate with the public to increase public support of science and um, also funding and have more of a relationship between what scientists do and what the public want and think and need from science as well. So here it was this huge government initiative to support scientists in their communication efforts. And a great way to do that is through de-extinction, something that the public is really interested in. Um, some of my colleagues said this from a very long time ago now, in 2000. Um, in the recent past, many scientists have looked at the involvement in the popularization of science as something that might damage their career. But now they're being told by the great and the good of science that they have a duty to communicate. So not only is it required to do your science to be a scientist, but it is a expectation to communicate and to do so effectively. Um, another, another colleague, Peter Brooks, said, popular science is best seen not as a conduit for messages, but as a forum. It is a conceptual space where the popular meets what is scientific. However, here, the problem lies in the expectation that there can be some measure of control over the meanings of an idea once it's placed in the public domain. 
And this is the tension that we see throughout the history of ancient DNA research, the need to reach out to the public, engage the public, but also the need to pull back, especially with the shifting of expectations as scientists are doing the necessary work of figuring out what's possible and figuring out what may not be possible. And as Dorothy Nelkin said, while they scientists want to be covered in the press, they're constantly concerned about how it is covered. And this is the real difficulty in science and public and communication. So one of, uh, one of my interviewees um, said this about celebrity strategy. And this is particularly important when you're looking at a scientific discipline that's just getting its start. I think media has played a huge role in ancient DNA. It was intentionally used to play a big role because if you think about it, ancient DNA started as this field that was crazy. At the time, we didn't have the methods. We didn't have the know-how. We needed that tie to build it up. And I think the media was used to generate interest and generate funding until we got to that point. So here we see that it was integral at the field's most vulnerable phase when it was nothing and needed to be something. But also we see that celebrity was used as a strategy to sustain the field over a 30 to 40 year period. And as another interviewee perceptively noted, this research discipline, ancient DNA, has developed the way that all new scientific disciplines develop in that you have an initial wonderful discovery, you have lots of hypes, high expectations, and then you come down to it with a bump. And then you do the hard work of working out what it all means and what you can really do. So my take home message for this is that I want you to realize that media influence was not limited to a single time, place, event, issue, or individual. Instead, it affected the entirety of a discipline uh, and it was shaped by science media interactions again and again. We also see that celebrity is far from a superficial feature of the search for DNA from fossils. And really I argue that celebrity is a powerful and a pragmatic feature in driving new research that might not have been pursued otherwise. And I suggest celebrity science as a framework uh, for better understanding the scientific process, because as historians, a good place to look for figuring out the scientific process is looking at the controversies, looking at the extremes, because those are the places that expose what gets done and how it gets done. And this is a model for looking at other sciences moving forward. So thank you for your attention and I welcome any questions. That was really great, thank you. Um, so just a little housekeeping, I'll, I'll try to moderate because we also have questions online okay. as well as in here. Um, so let's start with um, people in this room, especially if a student has a question, we'll give them the first go. Yeah. Um, I feel like the government was brought up a lot in this, and I'm curious what your thoughts are with industry investment or like industries getting involved in ancient DNA research, and maybe how like the uh, their goal for profit kind of plays into how they utilize celebrity science. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a that's a really big question. So I touched on it a little bit in the book, um, mainly because it's a really contentious area and it's a really re um, using industry and in science is not a recent development. Um, it's It's been around 
for hundreds of years. Um, think about the oil industry and paleontology or the mineral industry and paleontology. Um, but as far as ancient DNA research and industry, um, that's been relatively recent. And you can think of um, the researchers with the big labs. Um, and David Reich, I know he's often criticized for saying, you know, he wants to create an industrialized ancient DNA factory, you know, like something, a big complex that just churns it all out. And it's partnered a lot with the companies that develop the technology. And that's always been the case as well. Um, but that certainly plays a role and a huge role in determining what kind of research gets pursued and how quickly it gets pursued. Um, and that is uh, just a broader feature of um, science in a capitalistic market, um, but also, um, and, and I, I would say in a, in a nationalistic perspective, you know, uh, American science or Danish science or a European science, South American science, um, positioning oneself, aligning oneself with industry that can help make something happen. Because as we all know, it's difficult otherwise. That's a good question. I don't know if I gave an answer to it. To be determined. So um, thanks. I've heard you talk a couple times and I keep learning new things. Um, oh, that's good. <laughs> so I was curious a lot of um, like the film Dress Park, mm -hmm. a lot of what you're talking about is kind of stuff that happened um, after the film came out. I was, right. I was wondering if you had come across anything of like uh, scientists, experts in the field being involved in like the production mm -hmm. of the film. And I only ask because nowadays that's uh, that's a thing. Like, mm -hmm. Grab, but there's, the, the list goes on and on of films that will hire mm -hmm. uh, scientists to be... Uh, I don't know, like technical Consultants. specialists or something mm -hmm. like that to sort of try to ensure that things line up in the film. So I didn't know, uh, did you come across that at mm -hmm. all here? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great observation. So, um, yes, scientists as consultants, it's a big thing. And I'd love to point you to a book called uh, Lab Coats in Hollywood uh, by David Kirby. He was one of my examiners, um, but it's just full of fun, interesting information about scientists on set. Um, and particularly how to achieve the cinematic effect that you want, but also um, maintain scientific realism um, and accuracy, which are two different things. Um, but yes, um, Jack Horner was the scientific consultant for all the Jurassic Park films, except for the most recent one, which is Steve Busabi. Um, and um, he was heavily involved in ancient DNA research, getting it off the ground. Um, he was specifically interested in DNA from dinosaur bed. And um, scientists, um, the, the interplay between science fiction and science has always been interesting. One, one journalist described it as um, art imitating science and science imitating art. And um, Michael Crichton got his idea for Jurassic Park. He'd been mulling it around in his head, but he didn't have a way, he didn't have a mechanism by which to bring the dinosaurs back to life. And um, one of the papers by um, George Poinar, who was one of the first scientists to publish on DNA from Insects and Amber, that 1993 publication that was timed with the movie, he was looking at the cellular preservation um, 
just under the microscope of insects and amber um, in the early 1980s. And I think 82 is his publication. Crichton saw it. He said, that's it. And he spoke with uh, George Poinar, didn't mention the film. So, so it is said. Um, and then it kind of snowballed from there. So there's definitely that impetus there with ancient DNA and they grew up together and depended on each other in really unique ways. The question. Yeah. Um, my question was, uh, you know, is there a formula or ingredients to make um, study uh, like a celebrity science? And also along those lines, uh, you know, can this be used to uh, to you know give a lift to some of the under uh, like less funded studies that are still very important? Yeah. Um, yeah. So adopting celebrity as a strategy. Um, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And one thing. Okay, so your first question, is there is there kind of like a, a way to recognize a celebrity science, like a, you know, X, Y, Z? Um, no, not really. And, you know, I hate to say this because this is what the book is about, but I can't remember what I said in that particular chapter <laughs> about just some features of it. Um, let me let me let me jog my memory. Uh, only one cup of coffee today. So, um, but okay, to your second question, which is really, really, really interesting, is that even within ancient DNA research, um, the the poor paleobotanists, you know, they, they described it, this is what they have said, they ride the wave, you know, of the hype and the energy, but you know, you know, who cares about their poor plants? That's always the thing, you know, and, you know, wheat, ancient wheat DNA, I mean, that's incredibly important, huge implications for understanding agricultural developments, as, as you all know, I mean, it's, it's incredible, um, but, you know, it only goes so far for whatever reason. Um, so even within the field, there is, there's still that, that tension of, you know, um, and what do they say that the dinosaur paleontologists are the jocks in the high school? Um, you feel that over at the museum where I work, um, but everyone's perfectly wonderful. I love them so much, but, um, but that's what I've heard. And so as far as using celebrity to help um, raise your profile. I think maybe one of the, I think the more, the more in-depth way to phrase it would be using strategic science communication to raise your profile. And that requires, um, playing, playing into, or just recognizing and playing into what the public and the media respond to. And I mean, for the longest time, the past 150 years, it's been the hottest, the coldest, the fastest, or the slowest. And those are those are what they call you know, media pegs, things that work again and again. And um, I guess the question I'd kind of put put back to everyone too that I've been wondering and don't have an answer to is, you know, do we, including me, have a responsibility to try to change? what that news value is, or is it what it is? And we, and we roll with it. Um, and also that, that, but that's the normative part, the argument, like, we don't want to say it should be this way or should not be that way. But I mean, it is worth thinking about, um, you know, I didn't have to write a book about celebrity science, but I did because I saw it, but also because it sounds really good. 
Um, and that's all part of it. We're all part of that process. So I think really good public communication is a good way to raise your profile. Hey, um, we have an online um, from Jean Ristiano. Uh, it says, my work on historic late blight using herbarium specimens followed exactly the trajectory you described. I had several NSF and USDA grants rejected with reviews like those you described, not possible, high risk, et cetera. National Geographic gave me a $20,000 grant. We extracted and amplified ancient DNA from uh, pea infestants and we published in Nature. Ooh. We did a press release around St. Patrick's Day and the press was enormous, CNN, BBC, and NPR. I was then funded by USDA for further work to determine the source of the Irish famine outbreaks and identify the strain. I think this celebrity process is used in science in general to communicate our work. Just a comment. Um, that's that's great. That makes me feel good. I'm, <laughs> I'm on to something that someone else experienced. So yeah, yeah. Well yeah. done. Thank you. And then Rebecca, this plays right off of that, but in the opposite direction. How uh, do you have any examples, or uh, how could science be celebrity science be impacted by that media? I, I mm -hmm. have something in my mind, but it was referring to you. Guys. Okay. Uh, let's see. Um, well, on a, I know we're talking about the celebrity at the group level, how it affects the, the community, but, you know, you think about individual and group selection, it's, <laughs> I haven't figured out how to exactly apply it that way, but it's that idea. But at the individual level, um, a number of researchers actually, um, left the field because there was too much media, um, and not necessarily bad media, but just too much, you know, more than their 15 minutes of fame. And that was, and, um, but then there was um, negative media a lot. A lot of times, well, positive positive media, but negative feedback from colleagues um, about having the audacity. These are these are words that were used. You know, having the audacity to speak in this way or to say this or do this. Um, and a lot of it came down to was we just don't know yet. And even it's really interesting because you see in the early years in the 1980s that they in their newsletters that it you know it's it's exciting because it's unknown but at the same time there was lots of discussion about balancing their speculation with um making sure that they kept it they kept it close until they had an evidence and enough evidence and what constitutes as enough evidence um is always up for debate um and so Negative media, um, a lot of times it came through as um, the, the de-extinction stuff. So um, George Church and the uh, creating a Neanderthal or breeding a Neanderthal with a, you know, surrogate mother or something like that. Like what human wants to, you know, and, and things like that, things got twisted and um, there's negative media all in that way. Jason, uh, so um, I think, I mean, it's interesting because when people, when, you know, when people talk about what are the messages from Jurassic Park, mm -hmm. they tend to be about scientific hubris mm -hmm. and, you know, nature finds a way. And these are actually fairly negative messages right. about science. Um, and so what I'm wondering, you know, in, on, on one level, the celebrity science really worked for this field because it, it made mm -hmm. it popular and talked about it and sort of fantastical. But was there also any impact 
of celebrity science making that scientific community more accountable mm-hmm. for the sort of ethical or social dimensions mm-hmm. of their research. And so in that sense, could do you see evidence of celebrity science also making science more responsive to society mm. in ways that we might want to have happen? Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the accountability component. Um, let's see. So what the first thing that comes to mind is from one of, is a 1991 ancient DNA newsletter and Russell Higuchi, who was part of the Quagga study and also um, had a huge role in um, developing PCR for COVID vaccines and things like that um, in COVID studies. Um, today, um, he said in there, um, he said he's, ex, you know, paraphrasing, he's excited about the upcoming movie. Everyone else is too. And, but in your excitement, please don't overestimate or over-communicate, over-promise what DNA technology can do. And it was that genetic engineering and fear. And it is totally striking that there was such, that Jurassic Park empowered the field in the way that it did when the central message was, this is a bad idea. And so I, I, I just, maybe it says something about the general public, us included, that whatever it's like, like we want to, we want to know, we want to find that out. And that's something about the celebrity component that I've been trying to figure out is exactly what is it about it that makes it that way without us having to do much to it. As far as accountability, um, I think we're seeing that play out a lot more now with the, um, the colossal de-extinction panel that, you know, trying to bring in some researchers to, um, create more of a discussion around what's happening with this and the accountability and ethical piece. So I think it's, you know, a a long time coming um, and maybe because now something is happening. Um, But there has been discussion about, well, where's the public at that panel? Um, And and that's what we talk about. You're right. Science in general is where where are the people who this would affect? Um, Fred and then yeah, I just want to, I, I like Jean Roussano's comment about you know, how it worked in her science. Uh-huh. So in fact, I think about you know other examples. I, I think about you know sending people back to the moon, right. you know, as opposed to what the scientists would rather do. Right? Mm-hmm. They see this as in a way waste, but they can get funded right. to do that. They can't because they get excitement. They can mm-hmm. get funded for things that don't make sense. To Public, but also want to bring it back to us in terms of our work on gene drive mm-hmm. and you know I don't know if I think of that as celebrity science or not but it certainly catches the public imagination right and also when you talk to media you know they look for a quote from you that will get the public uh, well I don't know what other people think about that but it seems to me mm-hmm. that we're thought in that way but and maybe it helps us get research funding. You know, the idea of you know, it's just spread throughout the world. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think um, what you see and what you might realize too, as um, a whole other section of the book was the type of scientist that is in ancient DNA research. And there is a particular particular type. They have a particular personality, <laughs> <laughs> for better or worse. Um uh, they're competitive, um, strategic, pragmatic, um, friendly, um, outgoing, smart, um, resourceful, clever, like all of these. 
(laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and um, but and they have that they have a propensity to want to be in the media. And what you see though is that in because ancient DNA is featured so much in the media, the scientists have more practice at it. And I, I, I don't argue they become celebrity scientists, but they become media savvy scientists. And that is a extremely valuable skill. And knowing how to get that soundbite um, and people hear soundbite and they think, oh, no, 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 no. But no, that is what it comes down to. And that is OK. And there, there's my there's my normative claim. <laughs> it's snuck in there somewhere. Um, but but yeah, I think you bring up a lot of interesting points about, yeah, it's. And now going to the media <clears throat> or them coming to you, you can see it through a through um, a, a symbiotic relationship, really, is as how some of my colleagues have described it in the past. It's a symbiosis. It's how the world works. Um, one of the criticisms you brought up was that uh, it seems sometimes that the research question follows the research. Instead of getting mm-hmm. around, do you think that that's tied to the competitiveness and the trying to ride the wave of media? And do you think that with ancient DNA being a finite resource, that sometimes that that work is done before the technology is necessarily like very good? Mm-hmm. Yes and yes. Um, so the criticism there with the the uh, what some of the scientists called it was an answer searching for a question versus a question searching for an answer. And this really was the hardest part of the, of the book, um, but I couldn't leave it alone, but it was the hardest part because it was all about philosophy of science. And um, this idea, so you, when you're hearing that scientists are bothered by the answer, the DNA superseding the question that could be asked of the DNA. And and, you're, and then you're faced with asking, well, why? And that's because the, the scientific method, you've got to start with a hypothesis and a question and then figure it out. And, and really what philosophers of science have been showing is that's not really how it works. We, um, we're resourceful. Um, we, and we're also human and we, we go to what interests us or what's available. And that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, another normative statement. Um, and um, But what was so striking about all of that is that it mattered early on to scientists in the years, internal to the field, but also external, because a mark of a mature science is answering really big questions that, and not just getting a little bit of DNA from something. And so a lot of those um, remarks were an effort to demarcate the early era of the field from what they hoped would be a later era, more mature era. And a lot of that, and, and, it, and it, you, you see that, but then when next generation sequencing came on the scene, you saw a lot of that back to, well, now it's not just let's se- sequence whatever DNAs, let's sequence as many genomes as we can. And um, some researchers were, um, there's this really great media article um, where, they, where they said like, why not do 100? Why do 10? Why not sequence 100 genomes? Why We have the material. We have the technology. Let's, let's do it all and see what we've got. And also, science does operate a lot m- more frequently in that way than I think we admit. And, um, but the distinction there is to recognize what is happening versus people's judgment of what is happening. 
of what is valuable and to whom are really interesting. And one of your early quotes was someone saying that not necessarily doubting that it was possible to extract ancient DNA, but saying that it was unlikely that it would yield anything valuable. Uh, and I know this is a little outside your purview, but I'm just curious what would constitute valuable information in this context uh, and who gets to decide that? Yeah, that's the, that's the, that's the question um, that we don't have an answer to. Um, sociologists of science would say it's up to the scientists to fight it out or whoever is in, and then not just all the scientists, but whoever is in, um, if we want to reduce it, you know, whoever is in power or, or has more political power to determine what is good enough um, or what is competent research, um, what is a impactful result. Um, but in this case, um, you'd have to, we'd have to go back and read the grant application more fully to see what kind of arguments were made for that longer view. You know, like, yes, we're looking at the quagga and mammoths and insects and amber, but could this potentially be, and this is what people would say is important, you know, human evolution. Could that be extended there? Um, and I'm not, and I, I don't, I can't remember what, how far that argument was extended there and and then how that plays into the reviewer's response about it wasn't valuable enough. Um, let me read this comment from the chat and then we'll go back to you. Uh, so this is from Jeff Thorne and he says, uh, one takeaway for me from the Jurassic Park movie was how the casting reinforced stereotypes about different academic professions. The paleontologists were engaging and physically attractive. The mathematician, played by Jeff Goldblum, was incomprehensible and bizarre. The computer scientist was evil, physically unappealing, and played by the actor who later played Newman on Seinfeld. <laughs> He's my favorite. <laughs> the comic was a very classic, like, white man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so... Do I need to respond to that other than that, that I liked that? <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was uh, just uh, tied into your previous comment, actually. Okay, so let's move on. Uh, I wanted to ask you about something else that you said about uh, the public and the public involvement. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that this is directly related to, or it's not only related to celebrity science. Um, I... I believe that the public needs to be involved in solving a lot of problems that scientists and engineers um, address. That's, that's part of why we're here. But as I've gotten older, maybe I've gotten a little more cynical about the public's scientific ability and even their interest. They are interested in, some may be more interested in sound bites and simply supporting or opposing something, um, how can we uh, counter that? And do you have a role in that? Or maybe more broadly, does something like the museum have a role in that? Mm -hmm. Very perceptive observation. Um, yeah, and it comes down to is can we make everyone care about what we care about and also know enough or of enough information to contribute to it, whether it's an informed decision or, or not. Um, and that is outside of my 
area of expertise. And I think other people here in this room, especially with you know, the gene, gene drive research and um, would be able to speak to that better about um, it's, and it, it, you know, I, I don't, I don't have a good answer of like, is there a good, good mechanism for um, invo involving in a realistic way and within the public's capacity and our capacity. Um, but the museum does, museums are the institutions that do that bridge that work between, or should be um, bridging that work between academia, um, science more generally, and the public's involvement in it. That's a, that's a really keen observation, an important one. Yeah. yeah, just to sort of respond to Dr. Klassen's question a little bit, I think it's important to consider that the palatability of science has not been for comic book. Much like religious texts, the palatability has not been for comic folk. It's been mm -hmm. bestowed upon people from the voice of the doer, mm -hmm. you know, of the actor. Mm -hmm. So I think many times, I think the story of science, which is your wonderful, I mean, wonderful thing you're doing, I think it's important to realize that science has not historically been palatable. Mm -hmm. um, and Jurassic Park is very palatable. So I think that's a big mm -hmm. thing to talk about. We talk about our obligation to the social sphere and to the people. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to make it a little bit less about our elitism and mm -hmm. more about you know, communicating in a way that's effective. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you. Yeah, and exactly. And I think there is that distinction between what people like to refer as not like to refer, but do as it's dumbing it down or simplifying it. That's not that's not actually the most effective way. It's but it's it's taking the content and um, to use a marketing met metaphor, packaging it in a way that is appropriate for your consumer. And you know, that's that's a very capitalistic way to approach it, but um, saying it that way gets across the point that no one's going to buy it if it's not made for them. As the same thing is like, you know, one thing with our museums is certain people don't come to the museum because it's not really, they don't feel like it's their space. And there's a lot of work around there about, you know, how can we create institutions and museums as a place where um, lower socioeconomic people would want to come, um, marginalized groups feel like that's a place where they can be. So it's very much about understanding who the, uh, the mysterious public is, and, um, and and then figuring out what they need or want and, and meeting them halfway. That's great. Um, I think we'll wrap up here. So we were just about at the top of the hour. So help me thank Elizabeth again for a very, very interesting discussion. <laughs> and we'll see you next week uh, with Joe Hooker.